everyone. My name is Pastor Scott. I'm super glad to be with you. If you're new, uh, thank you for being here. We have a little tear-off in our bulletin that you can drop in. We want to make contact with you. We also have a gift out at the welcome table from One Cup Coffee. If you've uh, been in this church a while, you know that my family and I were on sabbatical for the summer. And, uh, you know, I feel a little bit like in the book of John, where John's father, Zechariah, got silenced by God, in his case, from doubt. I didn't have a lot of doubt. I was just really tired after 10 years. And then God just kind of sewed him up, and he had to just be quiet for months and months and months and months. And you just think about, as a pastor, he must have had a lot of words ready to speak once his baby boy was born. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, I definitely... um, just before I pray, we're in this series portrait, representing Christ in our city. And uh, last week, if you weren't here, uh, we talked about the anger of God. We talked about anger being part of love and anger being an on-ramp to more of um, God motivating us to the things that actually anger God's heart when people are subdued or the image of God is snuffed out in people. We also talked about how anger can be a crutch and pull us out of God's story. And we talked about the uh, story of the prodigal son. And the end of that story is a very chilling reminder of the danger of anger when it's not an on-ramp to more of God. That if anger becomes our kind of number one way we're connecting to God, we become left outside of the party. That story in Luke, the older brother is angry at the way the father has treated the son with grace and mercy. And he's literally outside the party when the story ends. And Jesus doesn't care to end that story for us. He wants us to wrestle with him. We talked about the anger of God, and I actually heard a lot of feedback this week from people like, oh, that's, I'm still wrestling with that. The God of the Old and New Testament, we said, is a God of anger, but it's not the whole story, that there's a larger meta-narrative, and I'm hearing pushback in a good way. We're wrestling with this stuff. Today we'll be talking about justice and mercy, two seemingly opposite sides of the singular character of God super difficult for us in our Western mindset to get our head around that God is both fully just and fully merciful. And then we hope that that's motivating us to change to be more like him. For many of us in the room, if we're justice-minded, we might be a little bit offended with the mercy of God. And if we're more mercifully minded, we're a little bit offended with the justice of God. And so the hope is today, as we come under the authority of scriptures, is that we're both inspired and enlightened and ultimately challenged to be more like Christ in the issue of justice and mercy so that we can represent Christ uh, for all he's meant to be in our city. Our text is simply this, Micah 6, 8. Uh, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the women and men of this church, uh, the visitors that have made their way here, the regulars that have spent years in this uh, room, in our, in our church, being formed and fashioned to be more like you. God, we pray now that as we come under your scriptures that your spirit would enliven us, embolden us, and challenge us. We know there's people in the room that are far from you. God, would you move them this morning closer to your feet? There's people sitting in places of shame and self-doubt. Lord, would you encourage them? There's others, God, that you want to challenge, that our faith is meant to be lived purposefully, doing justice, acting with mercy, walking with you, God. Uh, Would you this morning inspire us to be more like you? And all God's people said, amen. Our uh, message title today is called Before the Judge, A Portrait of Justice and Mercy. And we'll be looking at Micah 6, 8, and then John 8, 1 through 11. 
And I want to encourage you to stay in the text and stay with me. I'm going to say some things this morning that if you're not careful, you might want to take out of context. And the context is really important. There's a, there's a whole story beginning to end that we're going to talk about today. So I'd love you to just to stay with me because we're going to talk about uh, Jesus as the judge. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience in a court of law where you're literally before a judge. In high school, I made a series of poor decisions. It's a long story for a different day. But uh, some friends and I sat before a judge. And I tell you, and some of you are like, yeah, I've been there. You know? But when you're, when you're before the judge, you're not thinking theoretically about the nature of justice in the world. You're not thinking theologically about your perspective of the scriptures and What are you looking for? You're looking for your story to be told, and you're looking for mercy. You're looking to be just treated with favor if you've ever been before the judge. Uh, One parent was telling me a funny story that they talk about the grace of God and, and the justice of God. And so when their child, who's part of our community's parents are Christian parents, raising them in the church. And so when there's trouble that's kind of unfolded, the child is quick to say, grace, grace. He calls it out. I love it. Grace. Can I have more grace? If you've been before the judge, that's the word on your lip. Grace. I mean, luckily for me, it was 18 and it was innocent enough and and we kind of moved before it. But the the image stayed with me um, because uh, the way in which we see the judge will influence the way in which we live our lives. Now, Like I said, last week we talked about this wholeness of God's character being, yes, angry in the scriptures, old and new, but that being part of a much larger story of love. Today we're going to talk about two parts of God's character being both justice and merciful. And last week might have been kind of how we see God, and this week is a little bit more how we see the church, how we see Christian community, how we live in such a way to be in line with the scriptures. Because how we view justice and mercy will influence a great deal when it comes to our ethics as Christians. Our ethics. How do we live then as people of God? This is an interesting time to be a pastor. And I thought about this during sabbatical. It's been a whole lot of time just resting and refueling. But it's interesting because in this day and age in our current kind of you know, world of division, we have people that are so frustrated with the church. There's no justice If you would just teach the scriptures, then I would be part of your community. There's no justice. Now, when when the speaker says that to me, they're they're talking about a particular people group that they want to see justice for. You know, it's no justice for gender discrimination. There's no justice around racial discrimination or, 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 or sexual orientation discrimination. Like, if we could just get on in line with more justice as a church, then the church would get back to its calling. In equal measure, we have people in equal dissatisfaction in the church saying, there's no mercy. Like, you teach the rules, I was raised in this stuff, and I've been so wounded by the idea of God as a judge that I, I can't even walk into a church anymore, or I can't read the scriptures. Like, we've so distorted the mercy of God that I don't even feel like I have a seat at the table. The interesting thing on the scriptures is this idea of God being both justice and mercy is is the similar perspective that God is singular in nature it's us that struggle with the perspective and holding these things in tension and like I said at the outset for some of us that are justice minded we struggle and are offended by the mercy of God 
For others of us that are more mercy and love, we, we struggle with the idea that, that God does define himself in the scriptures as a God of justice. And we wrestle with that. And we need a reframe that God is the perfect blend of both justice and mercy. And this will influence downstream a great deal in our ethics and our understanding of Christian community, our understanding who even gets to partake in Christian community. And so our, our new portrait this morning that we'll sit under as a big idea is the judge, King Jesus, who is on your side, is beckoning you into his presence, full of justice and full of mercy. So we're going to talk about these two sides of the same God and end with a kind of portrait of Jesus that I think is going to be practical for us. Let's begin with justice. How do we become instruments of justice? We saw in Micah 6.8, we are required to act justly. And so if we're going to act justly, we're going to talk about justice. There's no justice without a judge. Over and over again in the scriptures, God is called the judge. There's just a sample. We did this last week as well. God is the judge. Psalm 75, Isaiah 33, God is the judge. Ecclesiastes 12, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. 1 Peter 4, 5, they'll have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4, God himself, who the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, all to who have loved his appearing, Romans 2, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Christ, as my gospel declares. Hebrews 12, God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. James 5, don't grumble against each other, brothers, as you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And when James is saying this, he's saying, hey, very clearly, we're meeting here in first century, the first church in Jerusalem, and James is speaking to his people, and he's saying, we will be judged. We are held accountable. But when we kind of preach a gospel where judgment isn't part of the character of God, it's not consistent with the scriptures. At the end of the story, Jesus comes from himself, Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, Jesus Christ, the judge, the good judge. It's just part of the scriptures. So when we adopt a certain theology, which is, you know, all mercy... It doesn't really jive with how God has told us to understand him. Now, the, the word of God is not God itself. The word of God is meant to be a perspective, a lens in which to see God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And many times in modern evangelical Christianity, we have a practical theology of Father, Son, and Holy Bible because we want to stay consistent with the scriptures. They're, it's God's word. Don't take it out of context. Super, super important. But the Bible is not God. The Bible points us towards God. But the Bible points this picture in the Old and New Testament through Christ himself that we will be judged. So that's a challenge for us in a modern context. Because what we would like to say to our non-believing friends is like, oh yeah, you know, God doesn't really judge us. But the reality is Jesus said himself is that Jesus will judge us. The question is, what does the good judge look like? So when we talk about justice, this is where our English starts to break down because there's two words I want to introduce to you this morning. Many of you have kind of studied this before. This is a review. Some of this is brand new, but it's helpful, I believe. Stay with me. That in Hebrew, the word often translated justice is this beautiful word mishpat. Mishpat, which means justice, which means rightness, which means in every single case, people are treated 
fairly. This is the mishpat of God. When we translate justice, it's mishpat. But more than just judging, it means also to take righteous action. So in Deuteronomy, the priests were to be given a mishpat. They were to be given what they were owed, a rightness. There's, a, there's an action. that the, the faith isn't just something that lives in our head. It's embodied in us, and the priests were to be given a mishpat. So this is what it looks like that when there's a rightness, when there's a justice, when there's a good and a bad, there's a, there's a mishpat. But this is it. What's interesting, it's not just a lack of mercy, it's also a violation of right action. That you can be out of line with the mishpat, even if you just kind of stay at home in your own head. Because what the scriptures called the people of God to was right action in the pursuit of Christ. The pursuit of God in the old, Christ in the new, same thing. The mishpat, and then there's this other word, sedaka, which is a hard word to, to read, sedaka, and it's the other part of justice, which is, which is kind of translated being just. We often translate it, though sometimes in the scriptures, sedaka is translated as justice. Often it's translated as righteousness. And this refers to day-to-day living, uh, day-to-day right relationships of being generous and fair and equitable, how you live out the justice of God in relationships but one to another. And so for some of us, we're, we're mishpat-oriented. For some of us, we're sadaka-oriented. But the nature of God is both. Both are necessary. The judge, the high judge of heaven, King Jesus himself, is both fully mishpat, fully sadaka, that we're meant to both be living this just life as we love other people. Our, our word justice doesn't really do, do, it, do it well. As one writer said, if we're not hungry for justice, it means we're too full of privilege. And so we should be, as God's people, we should be hungering for justice. We should be hungering for justice to be done. Not at the end times alone when people that have been far from God would be judged, but our life should be calling us to a deeper and deeper pursuit of justice, that we're living out the calling of God so that through our just actions and our sadaka relationships, the way we're trying to pursue God, that people would see God moving through us. Both in the mishpat and the sedaka, in the, 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 the right relationships and the right behavior. This is really, really important. And this is where some of us in the room are like, finally, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get down to it. And we've got to be more just. And people around us aren't pursuing justice enough. And, and we have an angle of that. Every one of us have an angle at the border with our, with our homosexual friends or cousins or neighbors, with, with gender discrimination or, or people that are hungry or people that are pro- protecting the unborn or, you know, like any of our values. Like we all look at the scriptures from our own perspective. But this is to be God's people. We're people of justice. But the problem, as Romans 12 says, the vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so when we fight for justice, we're saying, God, will you fight with me? Or God, you so embolden me through the text. I'm, I'm standing at the border. Or I'm standing for my gay friends. Or I'm standing for the unborn. Or I'm standing for the values that our, our, our society was built on. Or I'm standing. God, will you stand with me like you've called me, like I'm going to be a person of justice? But the challenge is that all of us are informed by a perspective of the scriptures, informed from our own story. Like all of us see, as Paul says, through a glass darkly. And so this is the challenge to be God's people fighting for justice, but recognizing we're not the judge. No, vengeance belongs to the God, to God. And so when we forgive others, there becomes this really complicated mix of if I forgive others, will justice still be done? challenge for us, as Jesus says, is I will be 
the judge. Romans 13.4. This is the English standard version, but I like the translation of the Greek here. Look at Romans 13.4. He, Jesus, is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Anytime you can work the word avenger in our current Marvel world, it's like, that's really cool. Jesus is like that. And that's a hard word because it says that Jesus will judge people. So back to Micah 6, 8. Finally, we're finally doing what the church is supposed to do. We're being, you're going to finally talk about judging the challenge. Micah 6, 8. It says, do justice. It doesn't say do judgment. We don't do the judging. Jesus does. Now, we're, we're called to practice justice, to act justly in this mishpat and sedekah way. We're, we're, we're trying to be more and more and more just, but ultimately, we have to leave the judging to God. And this is where some of us, we get the freedom to forgive others because we're going to actually take the burden of forgiveness and say, I'm going to issue you forgiveness because I want to be unburdened from this anger, from this hatred, from this, from this nastiness that's set up resonance inside my heart. And I'm going to transfer the idea of judging you, not from me because I see through the lens darkly. I'm going to transfer that onto God himself. God is a good judge. He will take care of you. People have wronged you. You have been hurt. And that's not okay. So where do we get the freedom to forgive? It's in saying, I'm not the judge. Somebody has done wrong. But I'm going to transfer that to the good judge. Because I can't bear this burden alone. Over and over again in the scriptures it says, you're not the judge. He is. Here's just a sample James 4.12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Psalm 98, God will do it. Let them sing before the Lord. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. Before the Lord, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Again, James 4, who are you to judge your neighbor? 1 Samuel 24, 15, David, the Lord, therefore, be the judge and decide between you and me. You want to look at the power of forgiveness. David was a very broken man, but in both the Old and New Testament said he was a man after God's own heart. Why? He knew how to worship. What else? He practiced justice. What else? He knew how to forgive. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was imperfect. But God freed him from the burden of what was going on with Saul. And he just said, I'm just going to practice forgiveness. I don't have to be the judge in this situation. I serve a judge. 1 Corinthians 4.15, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring the light to things hidden in darkness and to close the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. And so if you want to judge someone, judge yourself first. We're really, really quick to look at the sin of others without looking into our own hearts. And so when we practice justice, make sure you're practicing justice into the perspective of God, what do you want to say to me first? How do I need to act justly? Oliver Wendell Holmes, the famous writer, once said, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. We need to be people in a church that's, that's acting with justice and not trying to judge others, 
but acting with justice. And this is where I want to be a church that's stepping up for the marginalized, that's acting with justice and acting with purpose, that's saying, hey, I'm not the judge, but I can act with justice. And this is why, for the last couple of years as a church, we've had the strategic priority uh, of a ministry of racial justice and reconciliation because it's as we call out God's God-given, God-breathed inspiration that we, despite the, the skin color of, of our brothers and sisters, that we would love one another, that every single person is made in the image of God. And as we, we live that out, we can kind of point not to racial equality, we can point to Jesus, like, that's why we pursue this. Like, Soon Chan Ra, this theologian out of Chicago, he says this. He said, I've come to the conclusion that the pursuit of biblical justice in the United States requires uncomfortable, painful, and even polarizing pursuit of racial justice. In recent years, there's been a resurgence of interest by American Christians in the biblical call to justice ministry. However, this interest has not always yielded a deeper engagement in the hard work needed to enact biblical justice. And I love this, that he's framing the work of racial justice as biblical justice, because it is. Like, we were made in the image of God, so we're going to act justly. We would be telling the, the power of the church to be reconciling people. Dr. David Leong from Seattle, Seattle Pacific University has written a great book called Race in Place. We'll be bringing him to Bethany in March to kind of teach us more. We, we keep bringing authors in. There's a book group at Bethany North to study this book. You can email in a church. We'll tell you that's going to happen on Sunday mornings. And there's talk about an evening book group as well. Dr. David Leong says this about the church's power to be racial reconcilers for the sake of Christ. Leong says, reconciliation has always worked this way in the small incremental changes of our character and inward life, as well as the large aggregated effects of communities like the local church who come together with and for their neighbors. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit is at work in both realms, inviting us into contemplation and animating us for activism. So we need to be a church that's acting justly. Dr. Martin Luther King said this about the, I love this phrase, the fierce urgency of the now, that as the church lives out its calling to be a place of justice, people will see Christ more clearly. King says, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of the now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. There is a time for vigorous and positive action. And so as David Leong talks about in Race and Place, the church is the strategy to be the reconcilers, to be the place of justice. But we, we at times have failed in our calling. We certainly have. Where we just preach peace or preach, you know, kind of a reconciliation by faith, but we haven't talked to reconciliation by race, by gender, by sexuality, where we've, we've struggled to live into this. And, and nowhere did I see this more clearly during my break than, than the... The, 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 the case of the young black man murdered in Dallas, Botham Jean, the, 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 you, you followed this. Amber Geiger, the, the, there was this whole thing. And I just want to use this as an example when justice isn't a, a, a racial thing alone, it's a Jesus thing. It's not a police and a civilian thing, it's, not, it's a complexity. When we talk about race, it gets complex in a hurry because we all have our perspectives. We see through a glass darkly. But at the end of the trial, there's a very beautiful clip that I'm going to show you from Botham's brother, Brant, Gene, who, who practiced forgiveness with the white officer that shot his brother. Now, it's a complex case. And even in this video I'm going to show you, it's been misconstrued by every side under the sun. 
but it's, it's an act of forgiveness. It's, a, it's an act of, you know, another case where white America wants to be absolved of, of, the, on, of the, you know, the failure to enact racial justice. And so my friends of color were really upset with just preaching forgiveness but not doing the ongoing work of racial reconciliation. But what Brandt knew is that racial reconciliation in and of itself wasn't the pursuit. It's about deeper relationship with Christ that will cause us to enact justice with our neighbors that will cause us to act justly. And so in the courtroom, grieving the loss of his brother, after a long and painful court case, when the police officer who shot his brother was, was brought to justice, because there was a lot of failures made and, and was sentenced, there was justice done. Listen to the words of Brandt when he talks about what reconciliation looks like and who is the ultimate pursuit of all reconciliation work. I think we have this clip. I can speak for myself. I... I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it, again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family, but I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. We're going to stop there. This is not a commentary on justice in America and the, the fact that the white police officer didn't need to go to jail. It's what he says, the hero in the story, Brandt, who says, I think the best thing is for you is to accept Jesus Christ. He practices forgiveness because he understands that he is not the judge in the case, that this woman would go on to suffer. The judge in the case practiced incredible justice as well. Tammy Kemp, who also got in trouble for hugging the, the defendant, but more than just hugging, she gave a Bible to Amber Geiger. So when we pursue justice, it's, it's more than just the issue 
uh, of the unborn or the border or, or the court, like whatever our, our pursuit of justice is, it's always about more of Christ. It's always about living out this Micah 6 8 to be people that are acting justly for the sake of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, we're going to have different perspectives on our ethics, but we are united by Christ. And so we're called to be people in our suffering to be tearing down the walls, to be building bridges, practicing justice, tearing down divisions, as Isaiah says, repairing the breach. So justice, it's the character of God. There's a good judge. Let's talk at the other side of this, mercy, and we'll do this quickly here. How do we embody mercy? What is real mercy? I think we just saw it. Real mercy is the, the hug of a brother who is mourning the loss of his brother, but is still saying, God will judge you. I don't need to necessarily hold you in judgment anymore. Mercy, First Peter, first three, mercy belongs to God. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Luke 150, that his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is pursuing right relationship, which we had no earning of, but we get to step into. Uh, author Matthew Schmalz of Mercy Matters says this, mercy begins by opening oneself to those with whom we might strongly disagree. Mercy doesn't end there, of course, but it begins with such small acts of understanding, which can lead to life-changing experiences of love. So this is our calling as people of Christ. This is Christianity. People of justice and people of mercy. Uh, That we would be a church like this that's acting with justice but doing mercy. It seems impossible. Justice and mercy don't seem to go hand in hand. Read commentary to the video clip and you'll see a perspective in America that wants just justice, just mercy, or to fight it out somehow. I like the video because he says, where is the hope for justice? Where is the hope in mercy in Christ alone? I'll give you a hug because it's all I can do. But it's not about me. It's about him, the good judge who's on our side to bring us into deeper relationship as his people called to somehow both act with justice and do mercy. This is our calling. This is, we want to be a church like this of radical grace and ongoing transformation. Typically, churches kind of skew one to the other. You're a church of radical grace. Come on in. We're the church for the newcomers or we're the church for the ongoing transformation. Deep exegetical study. You know, more rules, more participation. We've struggled to be a place of both doing justice, loving mercy. I want to be a church like that. Can we be a church like that? Can we be placed, like in Psalm 85, when God brought Israel back from exile, it says this, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 7, blessed are the merciful ones, for they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. So I want to challenge us as a church. This is like, this isn't a sermon, this is a sermon series But I want to challenge us because some of us are justice-minded and we're offended by the mercy of God. Others are mercy-minded and we struggle with the justice of God. I want us as a church to say, how might we be a place of radical grace and ongoing transformation? 
Because I want to challenge you, how you see God will shape how you worship him. And some of you if, you, if you see God as a God of justice, you might be missing this other part of God's character, which is full of mercy for you, who never earned your forgiveness. And for others of you that, that see God all in mercy and love, you might be missing the call to ongoing transformation and the, the call of the scripture towards holiness in God's name. How we see God influences how we worship him. There was a speaker recently at King's that uh, one of the congregants shared with me, a guy named Ben Corson, who shared just briefly about the research of Andrew Newberg has done brain scans about this is what your brain looks like on religion. And what it shows in essence is that our, our brains are wired to be worshiping God. They, they, they did brain scans on MRI resonance machines where people that had a negative perspective of God, they, they read scriptures or they, they did something to kind of bring a perspective of God and certain parts of the brain lit up, areas of trauma and of fear. But other people that had a positive perspective of God, when, when they read the same exact text, their amygdala lit up. They found God to be holy, loving, and, and, and joyful because they had a perspective in their mind. It's like if I go to LA Fitness, and like just last week, I go to LA Fitness, you're like, really? I can't tell. Thank you. Yeah, if I go to LA Fitness, Tuesday's a bad day. I don't want to be there. I get there late. I, I do the things I'm going to do. It doesn't go well. Okay, the next day, same gym, same space, same exercises. I come out, man, I'm, I'm floating. What a great workout. What changed? Did the weights change? Or the elliptical machine? Did the physical space change? I changed. So when I come in contact with this God of justice and mercy, I need to understand that my perspective shapes how I'll be able to worship him. My biases, my discrimination, my lack of justice. Micah 6.8, he'll tell you what's required of you. Super simple. Act justly. Do mercy. Walk humbly with our God. How in the world do we do this? There's this phenomenal story in the Gospels in John 8, Dale Bruner, my Bible professor at Whitworth, says that forgiveness is the chief gift of the New Testament. That's a theological perspective that you may not agree with, but he says forgiveness is the chief gift of the New Testament. Remember what Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call the sinners and not the righteous. And so this amazing story, many of us are very familiar. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. The people came to him. He sat down. He's teaching them. The scribes, the Pharisees, they brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And they placed her in the midst. They said to him, this woman in Hebrew law, she shouldn't be there. They're breaking the law, bringing this woman there. Do you get it? She was half clothed. This is the worst day of her life. She's before the judge. Now in the law, teacher, this woman who's been caught, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Because as time goes on in this life, it's easier and easier to have a perspective of mercy because we understand our own failings and brokenness. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. And then the story ends, right? Because it's just mercy. It's just love. That's where the story ends, right? Or does the story keep going? I think the story keeps going. (laughs) Evelyn, you're wonderful. (laughs) No one, Lord. But the story doesn't end. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And we never see her again. We don't know who this woman becomes. I don't know who she is. I don't know what she's become. But this is where the power of both justice and mercy, both people on mission, but also people able to forgive others, because every single one of us will stand before the judge. Every single one of us will will stand before the judge at the end of our days. And when we stand before the judge, when in Revelation 20, when when the book of life is open, when our life is, is read back before us, and we're held accountable for the way in which we pursued God. Did we, did we act justly? Did we do mercy? Did we walk humbly with God? I, I don't even know what to do with that, Scott. I don't, even, I don't even know how to do that. The picture I need you to see is the Savior riding in the dirt. It's such a beautiful and evocative scene, and scholars have no idea, but many of them say that when he's drawing, he's taking focus off her, and putting it on him. I love that. Because I want us to be a place of justice, tearing down the walls of racism, and a place where every person in this community can come to learn about Jesus. I don't think the judge wants us to put a do not enter sign on the front door. But the miracle here is that in my life, Jesus traded places That when I stood before the judge, Jesus said, I am both the high judge, but I will take your place. I will give my life as a ransom for many so that in me, when you walk with me, you will walk into both justice and walk into mercy. May we be a church like that, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with the one God who loves us on every day of our lives, calling us to to not be judged, but to also go and change and be more and more and more like him. Will you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, thank you for this church and this community and this word spoken over us. And we pray, God, that for those of us that are being called to compassion ministries, justice ministries, to be advocating that we might be so stirred up by the reminder, God, that our faith is measured in who we, we advocate for. As we take perspective of the others and create a church and a community and a faith that's invitational, that all would come into the courtroom of our high God. Lord God, stir us up, the merciful ones, to be more just. And God, for the justice-minded ones, stir us up to be more merciful, to remember that we're called to practice justice but not to judge ourselves that we can practice forgiveness because you are the high king of heaven. You are the judge. And so when we trust you with the hurts and the insecurities of our heart and the places that we've been broken down, God, we're saying we trust you to do justice on our behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you for a God who takes our perspective, 
who advocates, who loves, who fights, who calls us. We love you so much. Would you allow us, even in this moment, God, as we're preparing our hearts for worship, would we, would we imagine ourselves now being brought into that circle of our accusers, those places of shame. There are people with stones all around us. God, would you allow us to enter into that space even right now? Would your spirit allow us in our mind's eye to see ourselves there before you on our worst day? Lord Jesus, you're beckoning us in relationship. You're saying, I'm for you. I don't judge you, but neither do I leave you unchanged. Come and follow me. May you stir us up to follow you more and more and more, people of justice and mercy, walking with you, the high judge of heaven. And all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with us as we close in response?